When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. The night I got the phone call from my panicked clients here in Alberta, Canada, their story was not what I expected. Usually, when I get this kind of call, it's in regards to some kind of poltergeist or perceived haunting phenomenon occurring on the property. Common calls for me usually include apparitions, objects suddenly taking flight, frightening noises, things of that ilk. Never do they consist of two of the most stable, level-headed, unshakable people that I know reporting seeing a seven-foot werewolf crouching in the back of their pickup until this call. John, who will use a, another name for the sake of this podcast, got up early, got dressed, had a shower, ate his breakfast, and prepared his coffee. Putting on his jacket, he explained, John left the house on their Nisku acreage while it was still dark. Their house is far from a main road, and a winding dirt driveway separates their property from the neighbors, which is a good distance away, coupled with a thick wood with horse trails surrounding this massive yard. The air was still crisp, and the light from the garage shone onto their driveway, highlighting the pickup truck against the deep woods surrounding the property. There, in the back of his truck, he claimed, was a large, muscled-up, bear-like animal with a wolf's head, crouching with human-type knees and supporting itself with long arms, which had elbows, features not seen on the average prairie coyote or wolf. It immediately looked up, its attention drawn to him defensively. It looked me dead in the eye, John had said. It was not afraid at all. It snarled at me, and I took off back to the house. He was white as a ghost, Mary, his social worker wife, had described. I've never seen him like that. John used to be a non-believer. Not anymore. This was one of three separate occasions with separate witnesses in which this strange dogman had been seen in their yard. Later, the family saw the same creature standing on the top of their workshop next to the house. It was then seen again by their son-in-law as it climbed the house and looked into their second floor bedroom window. They assumed, and logically so, that the morning John had seen it in the back of the pickup, it might have been attempting to climb the house again, using the truck bed as a stepping stone up to the roof. The consistencies were undeniable, and in every sighting, the monster was described as bipedal, returning to all fours only to crouch or kneel. In every encounter, it showed no fear of onlookers and snarled defiantly. Neither John nor Mary had reported or described the creature to the other witnesses prior to their own sightings. 
So each one stood on their own quite sufficiently, and not one of these individuals were interested in fame or attention. In fact, reporting it to me was as far as they intended to go at first, simply because of the bizarre nature of what they were describing. Who in their right mind believes in dogmen? Right? It was the same conversation Lori and Dreezy had years earlier in the state of Wisconsin in a tiny Walworth County town called Elkhorn. In 1989, Lori was a single mom working as a bartender, and one late night on her drive home, she saw what she described as a werewolf. On a two-mile stretch of the now infamous Bray Road, Lori stopped her car for a hungry animal kneeling on the side of the old farm road. It was bent over, chewing on roadkill, holding the food in its hands and kneeling like a human. When Lori's headlights hit it, it reacted instantly, growling at the car and showing no signs of backing away. Lori sped away in the dark to her mom's house in complete terror. The young bartender's story eventually became the basis for a now very famous article by Linda Godfrey in the local paper, with piles of reports later. The Beast of Bray Road became national news. North of Wisconsin, yet another series of reports have drifted in to bring fame to a creature now known as the Michigan Dogman. One such report came from a burly man from Holly, sent to fetch a Cadillac after the owner lapsed on payments. Finding the marked house and car in a wooded area of Michigan, both empty and abandoned, Jeff Cornelius was far more nervous about running into an angry owner with a loaded shotgun than any animal. Leaving his truck door open for safety, he left the vehicle with his flashlight to take a look around the property. With his nerves slightly on edge, he got the distinct feeling that he was less than alone. As he came around the side of the house, he found himself face to face with an upright canine around six feet tall, which seemed to growl from the bottom of its guts. We both froze, he recalled clearly. And that's when I knew it was time to go. Racing back to his truck, he left the dogman and the car behind and dropped the Cadillac account the next day, vowing never to go back to the property again. Accounts of these bipedal, wolf-like creatures did not start in recent years and are not limited to the United States and Canada, although more sightings seem to be occurring in these countries than others in the last 40 years. These are also not the cases of the classic Hollywood werewolf either. Accounts of individuals who believe they could turn into a wolf or werewolves are quite different than the encounters that people continue to describe to this day involving these dogmen. One of the most notable the Beast of Bedburg in Germany during the 1500s involved a man named Peter Stubb, one of his many aliases, who claimed he transformed himself into a fierce wolf by donning wolf pelts and murdering and eating his victims. He claimed that the devil had given him a magical belt or girdle, which enabled him to metamorphosize into the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like fire a mouth great and wide with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws. Removing the belt, he said, made him transform back into a human. No such belt was ever found after his arrest. In any of the current accounts of dogmen, very few attacks are ever documented, and no evidence of a human transformation exists at all. In fact, Lee Hample, a farmer who took up residence along Bray Road in Wisconsin, has been posting trail cams and bait in the form of roadkill for the beast for years. Not only does he now have some excellent paw print casts and tracks, but the footage has shown something unexpected. A strange mist triggering the cameras, removing the roadkill, and disappearing. 
So not only does it seem that the beast is not human, many have speculated that it might not be a physical being at all. This idea of a spiritual being can be traced back to ancient Egypt with the jackal-headed god Anubis, the deity who presided over the embalming process and accompanied dead kings in the afterworld. In fact, these fascinating creatures are often strongly associated with effigy or burial mounds created by the First Nations people of various areas and have been seen digging them up on multiple occasions. The Beast of Bray Road was caught twice digging up an Elkhorn effigy mound and proceeded to flee the scene when discovered. In the case of my clients, John and Mary, six specialized search cadaver dogs, which were brought to the property in July of 2021, indicated multiple hits during a search of the land, and the owners were told that there, indeed, were human remains buried across the property in the woods where the dogmen had been reported. Linda Godfrey stated that a common trait amongst many dogman sightings is the presence of a graveyard or military installation. Areas such as the alleged Battle Creek sightings in Michigan have both the Fort Custer Training Center as well as the nearby Harmonious Cemetery, a burial ground for a former religious community. I don't pretend to know or tell people that I know what it is, Godfrey said to the Battle Creek Inquirer. We have never had someone see one and catch it and put it in a safe place and study it that we know of. I can say it is a consistent phenomenon, occurring not only over the Western Hemisphere, but there are connections with werewolves in almost every culture. Godfrey has been pressed with similar questions in regards to why bones or skeletal remains have never been found. And while she doesn't pretend to know what these creatures actually are, she has toyed with the theory they may not be from this realm at all. This is a belief shared with many First Nations people and that these creatures are actually from the spirit world, placed in certain locations to protect sacred land or even curse it, depending on the culture. As I continue to investigate the Nisku property, I have come no closer to really understanding what the dogman could be, though Mary and I have felt often that these creatures, whether they be spirit or animal, seem to be protecting the space. Whether they are drawn there, born there, or placed there, these dogmen rarely cause physical harm, despite the chase that can sometimes ensue. Encounters with humans often seem accidental. One such incident was reported on Monsters and Mysteries in America when two school children playing in the snow near a pond saw a dog lapping water. When they approached to pet the dog, it turned, stood on two legs. It pursued them over a short distance and broke off the chase quickly, leaving both children terrified, but unharmed. Animals and pets, however, do not seem to escape the line of fire. The Beast of Bray Road has been seen on many occasions, killing dogs or prowling the area with pet cats in its mouth. So while humans aren't on the menu, these beasts seem to be fond of smaller prey and have even been seen pursuing deer and livestock. In the case of my clients, their large mountain dog, who is normally unbearably lazy and easygoing, becomes notably agitated and aggressive after the creatures are seen lurking in the woods surrounding the house. Their dogs, thankfully, have not yet been approached directly as far as they know. In my opinion, there would be no dog left if they had been confronted. The nature of these beings, for now, can only be guessed. For the people who have seen them face to face, however, they are unforgettable and terrifying. They leave an indelible mark on the individuals who have stood within feet of these stunning, massive, and imposing creatures. And if we know one thing for sure— they leave us with two very important lessons. The first is that the nature of our world, the fabrics of what we think we know, is still being tested. The second is that lore, 
whether it comes from the old stories or the magic of Hollywood, can have its roots in fragments of truth. Sometimes the creatures of our nightmares hold a greater purpose, and as horrifying as we think them to be, they have a reason to be here. Part of our journey as humans, I believe, is to replace fear with curiosity and listen to their story. In each encounter, environment, burial ground, tale, and sighting, perhaps we can take a step into the pause of these fascinating beasts and begin to glimpse a bit of our part in the story. The human may not be in the werewolf at all, but I have a hard time believing that we have no part to play in their world. Nor do I believe their story is entirely separate from our own. How we discover that connection is up to us. I think next time I go for a walk in the woods, I'll take a pork chop with me in my backpack to distract a dogman if I encounter one. Next up, here's a conversation that Morgan and I had about the dogmen and other creatures with friend of the show, cryptozoologist Ken. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Gerhard. Well, I am really looking forward to today's discussion because as someone who has one of these really bizarre creatures living, I guess you want to say living, about 45 minutes from me here in uh, in Alberta, this subject for me is is just one of the coolest things. And, uh, you know, it's made such a, a blossoming appearance, I guess, in, in both pop culture and in cryptozoology and the supernatural and whatnot. And today's guest, I couldn't be happier to have on Supernatural Circumstances because I, I so respect his work and he is such so knowledgeable in the biology side of the cryptozoology world that I'm just looking forward to this discussion. So Mr. Ken Gerhardt, is a cryptozoologist and a field investigator, as well as a fellow of the Pangea Institute and consultant for so many research groups. He has been on every show imaginable in search of monsters, unexplained files, uh, monster quest. I, I think if it's been on TV, he's probably been on it. Uh, and has investigated reports of cryptids and mysterious animals around the world, including Bigfoot, Loch Ness, Chupacabra, Mothman, Thunderbirds, werewolves. And in addition to hosting the History Channel series Missing in Alaska, uh, he was featured in the History Channel special The Real Wolfman. So, Ken, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me, Morgan. It's uh, absolutely an honor and a pleasure to be with you here today. So before we get before we get started, I kind of want to just chime in just for a sec. 
I am a complete dum-dum and a newbie when it comes to all this stuff. So that's <laughs> that's the role that I kind of play on this show. So if my questions are very, very stupid, please don't be offended. <laughs> well, thanks, Mike. There are no stupid questions. Uh, we, we all learned that growing up, right? So right. You're, you're not going to learn unless you ask. What I do in Investigate is kind of a niche thing, and uh, it's it's a also a very complex Lots of layers, you know, in 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 every topic that I investigate. So uh, uh, this should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Very cool. Me too. Yeah, I it, to me this topic is so interesting because our understanding, I think, of of this creature at the beginning was something that was very biological. It was, you know, people were thinking and equating this with Bigfoot and Sasquatch, and as research has gone along i think we've begun to realize over the years that this is something else that there is there's more to this and i mean you've worked with every cryptid imaginable uh that researched pretty much everything out there when when you first heard about these encounters what was the first story that you heard and what did you think first of all i think we have to acknowledge that the term cryptid and, I, and I'll admit, I'm an old-school traditional cryptozoologist, so I tend to look at these mysteries from a strictly zoological perspective, okay? Or at least I try to. I'm also very open-minded, so I appreciate that there probably are other things happening in our universe and our world that we just don't understand. As far as the dogman goes specifically, I don't know if I would consider it. I know that the term cryptid has evolved, and it now includes things like the dogman and aliens and... Windigo and all these different things, but the traditional definition of a cryptid was basically a an unknown animal. So in terms of dogman, of course, it sounds like an animal. What people have described is, you know, dog-like, uh, has some human-like characteristics, but primarily it's it sounds like it's an animal of some kind. But when you kind of dig a little bit deeper, and it doesn't really fit within the paradigm of zoology. I mean. You know, the, the idea of a some type of hybrid between a canid, a dog, wolf, uh, and a human or anything humanoid, a hominin, which is what we are, um, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, the last common ancestor that humans and dogs, canids had was about 80 million years ago. It was called a Boreo-Eutherian. And, you know, that's our last common ancestor. And then Canids evolved in one direction and primates and hominids evolved in, in a completely opposite direction. So it just doesn't make sense biologically or genetically that those two lineages would diverge again. Um, my first investigation into the dog man was probably the Beast of Bray Road in Wisconsin, which many people have heard of, of course. Uh, Linda Godfrey is the, the primary investigator up in that area, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, to be specific. Uh, I probably got up there about 20 years ago, um, didn't really connect with Linda at that point, and I just sort of camped in the area, looked around and stuff, didn't interview any witnesses. Um, since that time, I have interviewed other witnesses through the years of dogmen in Ohio, Texas, uh, some other, other states, Kentucky, and the descriptions are, are a bit varied. You know, but I guess, you know, I, I go back to my point, my first point, which is I don't think it's an animal. It doesn't sound like an, it, it sounds like it, it looks like an animal, but it, it, it couldn't be an animal, I guess, uh, scientifically speaking. So 
No, they are complex. And, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's one of the reasons why I was excited to have you on specifically about this, because the for me as a paranormal researcher, for me, I've I've taken the same look at it. And it seems to me very much that this falls into a supernatural category, which is unique, really, among a lot of these sort of upright creatures, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. You know, because normally we think about Bigfoot and we think about, you know, a biological thing and it, do it doesn't seem to be there for me either. When you have, you know, obviously looked at dog behavior and wolf behavior and, and things like that, is there any parallel in behaviors at all with these things? No, and that's a great point. Um, you know, we talked about, or I briefly talked about the physiological characteristics. And again, there is some, there seems to be some variation with regard to dogman descriptions. People say that it primarily walks up on two legs, so there are accounts of it going down on a four but generally speaking, most people describe that have seen these dogman creatures describe a wolf or dog-like head placed on a body that is somewhat humanoid and shaggy, but also bipedal and broad shoulders and things. The physical characteristics don't add up, but let's talk about behavior patterns because animals tend to have fairly general behaviors. There are, of course, individuals within any species, and you do get different types of behavior from, from individuals within a species from time to time. But for the most part, bears are bears, cats are cats, dogs are dogs, and so forth. Now, the behaviors described with these dogman reports generally sound, to me at least, sound hyper-aggressive. Many accounts of them chasing cars, chasing people, terrorizing people, you know, that, that I would not expect from any wild animal. Most wild animals, even large predators like bears and mountain lions and wolves, are fairly reticent and fearful of humans for the most part. They will attack in unusual circumstances, but it's uncommon. Whereas with dogman, it seems like they're always on the attack. They're always chasing people, hunting people, jumping up out of the shadows. And, uh, you know, there are other aspects too, which, you know, we can talk about. Many people have described a strange amorphous mist or foggy-like substance that surrounds these creatures. Many people have described strange sounds like clicking and popping noises, not animal sounds, but something else. And many other eyewitnesses have described residual things that have happened to them. Uh, attachments, I guess, is what you call them in the paranormal field, where they have these dogman sightings and then they have other weird things happen to them. So all in all, it's just a, it's a very weird situation. So that's why I don't view it as a flesh and blood you know, traditional cryptid, but something more metaphysical or supernatural. So have they ever had like an actual physical interaction with people? You say they've chased and those kind of things, but has there been an actual attack where somebody was injured? Well, there's a famous story from uh, an area called LBL, Land Between the Lakes, which lies there between uh, Kentucky, mostly Kentucky, and maybe a bit of northern Tennessee, and there's a story about supposedly a family that was out camping and, and they were massacred by a dogman type creature. Admittedly, I'm not as familiar with all the details of that specific story. I have colleagues that have looked into it, guys like Barton Nunnally and Josh Turner and Kirk Stokes, 
Jody Cooks and others. And so that, but you know, apparently that story has been very hard to track down in terms of there, there is at least one gentleman who claims he was there, but there has been no verified law enforcement record that would support this massacre is basically what it was described as. So that's a pretty scary story. Beyond that, I'm, like I said, I'm not familiar with anyone actually claiming that they were physically accosted, but I have heard accounts of them scratching cars, chasing cars, chasing people. That seems to be common, but that's the only account that I've heard of where they, someone was physically, allegedly physically harmed or killed. It's so interesting to me because even in, in the paranormal world, when I'm dealing with with hauntings or sort of the non-physical end of the paranormal spectrum because there is that crossover that you're talking about where you know something has been seen as non-physical but at the same time is behaving in a very physical manner it's you know there's it's showing up as as a solid shape. And I, I think people, when they, they hear the word supernatural, they're thinking, you know, oh, it's going to show up as some transparent form or, you know, and the, and the people that have seen this thing have said, no, 100% this thing is something that's, that's physical. And, you know, I could reach out and touch it or it ate my cat or <laughs> whatever. But what I find really interesting about this is that it has these weird biological overlays in a way that these entities that that I would deal with you know, on the other end of the spectrum don't mm -hmm. seem to have. Um, you know, it seems to have this sort of physical characteristic where it will eat or it will hunt. And that to me is really fascinating. For, coming from the, the paranormal side of this it is, is really, really interesting. How biological do you think these might be if if that's even a I don't even know if that's a question but I think it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to talk about yeah well that's uh that's a fair point uh, there have been accounts of them feasting on roadkill for example um so yeah that is you know and and admittedly Morgan you know paranormal supernatural that's more of your wheelhouse um but you make a strong point because I, I often tell people when they when they mention well dogman is an animal because it's physical well I, and i point out that you know my my colleagues in the paranormal and metaphysical fields have experienced things that are physical you know objects flying across the room and you know apparitions that seem solid and uh, things like that so um, but you're right there seems to be more of a at least the simulation of a biological process that's demonstrated by these creatures in terms of them showing um appearing to eat, you know, being out in the wooded areas and the wilderness and things like that. I'm, I haven't seen any good tracks. I've been shown alleged dogman tracks that to me look like they could be explained by other animals like badgers or large dogs uh, or distortions in the snow. Uh, I'm not aware of any dogman droppings. Uh, that's a pretty biological thing that all living animals leave behind in large quantities. <laughs> I've had at least one dogman researcher tell me he had droppings, but uh, frustratingly, as as is often the case with researchers, they you know they'll tell you they have something, but they'll never show it to you. I don't know. You know that that's that's a great mystery. Now, I'd like to draw one other parallel, though, if I may, and this is something that I think gets overlooked a little bit, but. My perspective is a little bit different in terms of I have investigated creatures like the Mothman and other what appear to be flying humanoid type creatures, which are basically described as being like half human or humanoid with wings and often characteristics that look like other winged animals like bats or birds. 
I've interviewed many witnesses that have seen these creatures. And there seem to be, at least in my opinion, a lot of parallels to the dogman phenomenon in terms of the hyper-aggressive behavior, the scare tactics, if you will, the unnatural behaviors and things like the attachments. So I don't know. It, it is possible that these two phenomenon are related or are basically caused by the same mechanism, whatever that may be, these manifestations that look like half man, half animal. But I find it interesting that people seem to be more, at least in this day and age, are more into the dogman subject, you know, as evidenced by all the Facebook groups and podcasts and stuff. And I wonder if some of that might be due to the fact that humans, let's face it, we love dogs. I mean, dogs are our best friends. We feel a connection to dogs and canids. And so for whatever reason, dogman seems to be a much more popular archetype than something, at least recently, than something like Mossman. I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on that. That is a really, really good point. And, and you're right. There has been a, a, a surge in, in I don't know, even necessarily whether it's sightings, but definitely the, the, the chatting about it and the, the, you know, the name is in popular circles now so much more. I had a theory in the, the last couple episodes we had on Chad Lewis and we were talking about the Wendigo. And I had a, a theory about that. And I, I kind of wonder if it spreads into this a little bit mm-hmm. where in the, the the paranormal field what i've noticed over the last 20 years of doing this i i've seen that people's focus and people's attention to something whether it be something to do with folklore whether it be something to do with a you know a, a paranormal phenomenon in the house or whatever is going on it, your attention to brings more about and i i kind of wonder mm-hmm. if this is one of those things where you know, the more you put focus in, the more you put belief in, the more you put uh, you know, attention to whatever that is, the, the, the bigger and the stronger and the, the more prevalent something actually becomes. So I kind of wonder if that aspect of non-physical is playing out here as well. And it's not that it's in people's heads because I don't think it is at all. I, I really think that this, whatever this thing is, it, it exists on some level, mm. probably non-physical level, but on some level. Uh, but I kind of wonder if if that's what we're seeing because with the Wendigo, the reports changed from early on, early days. It you know it looked one way, and then as the Europeans came in and and settled and things like that, then they were adding werewolf traits to the mm. Wendigo. So people were seeing these these sort of canid looking creatures that were emaciated and disgusting and and uh, huge. Mm-hmm. And you know as as the legends and the lore changed, people began to see different things. And I, I kind of wonder if that might be the case here as well. Is that the the more thought and focus that people add to this, the more prevalent this is becoming as an intelligence, as a thought form, or, or something like that? What do you think? No, that's uh, that's a great theory. Um, you know, and again, all of this is speculation. Of course, it's fun to speculate about this stuff because we can kind of get real cosmic with it. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I feel the same way that, you know, theories about, quote unquote, thought projections that these and I and I write about this in my Mothman book, that these beings perhaps are they come from us, that we are somehow channeling them, that we're the conduits. Yep. And, And I'm not saying that they're hallucinations. I mean, they obviously do when they appear, they do have a physical presence in our reality. But. Perhaps somehow we are creating these, and you know, you you could you could make an argument for that 
hypothesis in several ways. You know, first of all, you could run a parallel to quote unquote aliens or ETs. Long before there were aliens and ETs in popular culture, there were, you know, little people and fairies in, in different cultures and around the world. They weren't associated with spaceships, they lived out in the woods, but they basically had a lot of the displayed a lot of the same behaviors and characteristics that our ETs do, abducting people. Um, you know, little magical powers and weird things like that. Then you had, um, you know, a renaissance when the UFO phenomenon started in the 40s, and you had different types of aliens, right? Remember, there was a period when you had the um, the Nordics, you know, there were these aliens that were all like, you know, beautiful yeah. humans with blue eyes and blonde hair. And then they, and then there was a period where they were the greys, and you know, that's what everyone was seeing. So that's the first argument. You know, is that 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 archetype of the alien or the ET has kind of evolved through time as, as culture has evolved. So you could make a similar argument in terms of like, you know, a dog man. It seems to be something that's been around for, you know, potentially thousands of years. If you look back at mythologies of, you know, Anubis and dog headed men in, in different traditions. And, and but, you know, but dog man has really taken off in recent decades. Right. So whereas Dogman was considered to be associated with Wisconsin, Michigan, and some of those areas around the Great Lakes made back in the 80s and 90s, now Dogman is everywhere. People are having sightings on every continent, in every state, in every province. So how did that happen? How did a creature, why weren't we hearing about all of this Dogman stuff, at least to a greater degree, decades ago, right? Why is it now so prevalent that people are having all of these experiences? So that I think would be a strong argument in support of somehow these things are connected to us and that we have propagated and proliferated this phenomenon somehow. I agree. And what's really interesting to add on to that and to add on to support that would be what the first different First Nations cultures have had to say about it as well, that they have often said that these are are placed there or are placed on near burial grounds or effigy mounds and things like that in order to protect a space, mm. which would also lend to the idea that this was something that was not necessarily, I guess, man-made per se, but thought-focused or deliberate. Mm. And so maybe we need to look into that end of it to really to, to really to understand that side of things because i i find that so many of the cases at least that have been been brought to my attention and the one that i've been dealing with here in alberta that applies you know there there's been human remains uh indicated by search dogs in in the location where the dog man here has been uh found and uh has been reported so i kind of wonder if if there's something to that as well where you know you've got uh you've got a lot I guess I guess older older energies or older ideas that are are playing out here. Yeah, you know uh, these these are things that have been with us with our our culture for our different cultures, but you know our species for hundreds or thousands of years. And again, there's a parallel, you know, when talking about Mothman. I mean, uh, the notion of a winged humanoid uh, that goes back you know, thousands of years to the ancient Assyrians worship these demigods called the Apkalu or Abgal. That's right. The Sumerians, the ancient Egyptians had not only dog-headed men, but bird-headed men and, 
you know, so the, the, these these man-beast hybrids, at least these concepts, have been with us literally for hundreds of thousands of years. But like many things in our culture, they seem to resurface and there are cycles, right? It's cyclical. There seem to be waves, if you will, where there are higher degrees of intensity. So Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, there's been so many of these, these encounters, I think, that have been linked to that almost thought-based supernatural side of things. I think of uh, even the the locations that are, have become more popular, like Skinwalker Ranch and things like that, that have become more mainstream. And I remember back when George Knapp was investigating and he was talking about people and the Shermans that used to live on the property seeing these upright canids on the the bluffs of uh, and sort of the the edge of the basin uh, on Skinwalker Ranch and they would report seeing these things step out of what they felt was like a portal mm. uh, they would see a flash of light and one would appear or a flash of light and one would disappear and I thought that was just really really fascinating to me because I it's the only time that I've ever heard of that uh, in relation to these but it just I don't know really it, that that really really caught caught my attention and like you were saying people people just seem incredibly frightened of these it's not like bigfoot encounters mm -hmm. where people are either you know fascinated or there's there's doesn't seem to be as many accounts of them being so hyper aggressive as you were saying they they seem to be a little bit more fascinated and interested where with dogmen there seems to be just absolutely no middle ground people are either getting their cars are getting chased or they're getting chased or or something's something's going on uh, do you think that this lends to the idea that maybe they are like a guard dog that they're they're standing guard for whatever reason over something and because they seem to always break chases off uh linda godfrey talked about that a number of times in in her books as well mm -hmm. yeah linda certainly has made a strong case that uh, you know at least in her state of wisconsin that there might be a connection between the dog man and these native First Nation effigy mounds, uh, you know, sacred places and things like that. There's a famous account, and I'm afraid the name of the eyewitness escapes me, but this was, she writes about back in the 1930s, there was a gentleman that encountered one of these dogman creatures in a cemetery, and it was digging at a grave. And it turned to him and in a, in a very inhuman voice, uttered the word Gadara, which is supposedly, a, a, you know, an interpretation of you know, some type of god or guardian or something like that. Um, the flying humanoids that I mentioned, like the ancient Apkalu and or Abgal and others, were often considered to be guardians or protectors. Another one would be Garuda, a winged humanoid creature from Hindu and Buddhist mythology. So yeah, they, you know, that you could make that argument. They seem to be at least perceived as, or have been perceived as, protectors or guardians of something. So, you know, that that's one possibility, I guess. Going back to the, the 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 heightened state of fear that people experience and the fact that these creatures seem to be hell-bent on chasing and harassing people, is it possible that they are somehow feeding off of our emotions? Uh that they basically are supercharged by our you know, our fear that they're, you know, it's almost like psychic the concept of a psychic vampire something that feeds off of or gets its energy from our emotions and our and fear let's face it fear is a pretty powerful emotion perhaps if not the most powerful 
Um, it's fun to speculate, but we we just don't know, really. No, we don't. And and I th- I think you're spot on though with with the emotion side of it because, you know what I've what I've found at least just in the paranormal field, but also just in life in general, is that you know when we are emitting that emotion or whatever it is, whether you know we're in joy or whether we're in fear or whether we're in in frustration or whatever it happens to be, what I've always found is that we really do bring about or attract whatever where we are, wherever we're sitting on on that emotional scale. And I love the fact that you've bring this up because, you know, I I wonder even just to to add to your point if this might be something where if, you know, somebody is is in the woods or, you know, in that situation and is kind of in fear or is emitting some some sort of emotional frequency uh but on some level this is they're being a they're they're attracting some of this in not to say that it's their fault because it's it's not their fault but i i kind of wonder if there's something there's something to that i think that's really interesting and to add to that and this might play into this as well talking about the the fear side of it i heard linda godfrey she was on a, a podcast a little while ago and she told a story that I swear to God, I will never forget. <laughs> and next time I'm out at my client's property, I know for a fact that I'm going to be thinking about this. She was talking about a case in Maine where a couple were just sitting on their porch. It was it was dark out. They had their porch light on, but the rest of their yard was, was pitch black. And it, they got a sudden feeling, that gut instinct, that something was wrong. Something just was not right. And when they shone the light out into the yard, because they got up immediately, they shine their light out into the yard and they reported that they had five of these dogman creatures in the yard and they caught the eye shine of these, of these wow. things, which again is another one that's weird. The fact that they've even got eye shine because it's such a biological thing, but yeah, so creepy. And so they ran into the house because they didn't know what else to do. And they got the impression that it it was a pack and they ended up calling the police. The police told them to call wildlife fish and game wildlife fish and game said, lock your doors. We have no idea what to do. And so they were stuck there right. for the night with these things in their yard, <laughs> wandering around their house. And it's, it's so strange. So are these, are these things usually seen this way? Cause I, this was the first I'd ever heard Ken of packs. Yeah, that, that is, less common i have heard of other i don't know if i describe it as a pack but i know there's at least one notable account from wisconsin of some teenagers being chased by two at least two or three of these creatures at once they were in a park and they saw them these these dogman creatures drinking out of a stream or something along those lines and were chased um but that is fairly uncommon. It use it seems like most of the time it is one singular individual creature that that people report or describe, anyways. Um, so yeah, but you know, Linda obviously has a much bigger database. I mean, she's been at in this particular topic much more focused than I have been for the years, and 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 has spoken to many many more eyewitnesses than I have. All of the dogman encounters that I've investigated in, include involved one individual creature. So um so that that is uncommon in terms of someone describing a, a pack of these things. Obviously going back to the biological side, I mean 
hypothetically, if this thing was a, a living animal and had some type of evolutionary link to canids, you would expect it to be in a pack because, you know, you, except for the occasional rogue wolf, I mean, for the most part, canids, they hunt in packs, coyotes, wolves, and wild feral dogs. You know, they're very social animals that, that form these these hierarchies. Before the show, Morgan sort of gave me the rundown of a case in Ohio uh, that a judge encountered a dog man and it chased him. And Morgan, can you sort of give a little bit more info about that? Because this, I think, will lend to the the idea that there is something biological about them, perhaps, and maybe there is actually that pack behavior. So yeah, this this is phenomenal. And I'll touch a little bit first on, on the the pack thing and the hierarchy thing, because in my book, Teaching the Living, I actually did a, I did a bit of a study on negative entities, these sort of thought forms that have become thinking beings and, and whatnot, and that seem to terrorize houses and people and in haunting situations and stuff like that. And what's really interesting to me about this, and I just had an aha moment as we've been sitting here talking about it, is that they typically display a lot of territorial high like almost almost hierarchy behaviors mm -hmm. within households so for example they will if if somebody is sort of stepping out of line in accordance to whatever rules it's it's dominance rules that this thing has kind of established then there will be an attack like there will be something happen whether there's a bite or a scratch or a shove or or something like that and it just clicked with me right now that here we are talking about these things as as dogmen and and dogs with, with these different traits and things like that and that i've seen these patterns before in haunting situations mm. that you know they're not necessarily something that's physical but they they portray these these traits of you know getting in fights with family pets for instance and barking and snarling and getting in fights with other like the, the family dog because the family dog is territorial and and things like that so anyway sorry i just had this <laughs> it was just this aha moment as we've been talking um i gotta think on this more but no that's that is interesting <laughs> the ohio judge case i thought this was so interesting because he ended up uh it was a a fellow again i, I was listening to a, a a podcast on this and he had said that at, when he was a teenager he was jogging and going for a run near some cornfields in Ohio, and he was running down the road, you know, just having a, it was a calm, quiet night, and he heard something in the cornfield. And when he looked over, he couldn't see anything, but he could see whatever it was was quite big because of the height at which these corn stalks were moving. Mm -hmm. And as he's running along, he would run and it would run, and then he would stop and it would stop, and then he would run again and it would run and it would stop, and it never came out of the cornfield at the beginning, it just did this weird tracing pattern sort of back and forth. And he was getting very nervous, obviously, he's by himself. And he could see the fact that up ahead of him, there was this T-junction where there was a road, and you could either go left or right, mm. or basically left was into this other cornfield, right was towards his friend's house. And to make a long story short, he decided that he was going to get to the road and sprint from where he was to his friend's house because he was he was terrified. He knew something was was watching him and following him. So he gets to this T-junction and what steps out of the cornfield is exactly what we've been talking about. This great big giant 
creature that he described he described it as anubis he said it looked like anubis it was this sort of long face with these big pointy ears and this, this really thick body mm. and it came out of the end of the cornfield and he sprinted to the right and he ended up diving into his friend's pool to try to get away from this thing it didn't end up chasing him but when he had talked to a uh, a fellow who worked at a zoo he was a biologist something like that and he had said that you know you're really really lucky that you didn't go left and he said well why is that and he said because often he said when you get if if this thing is thinking in terms of a wolf type creature if it's got the same propensities and things like that that often what they they will do this sort of chasing behavior this this back and forth behavior in order to steer the victim or the prey into the rest of the pack mm. and he said i bet you there was a pack in the cornfield and i i always thought that was really 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 interesting that is yeah fairly unnerving too for sure hmm yeah i can't even imagine like yeah <laughs> i honestly can't imagine partly because i'm a terrible runner but <laughs> also because it's just it's just terrifying but yeah <laughs> just don't ask me to run anywhere it's not good but uh you know it's it's funny because yeah i've this the aha moment about these things kind of working in packs and this 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 haunting the, the haunting behavior that i've seen in with negative entities has got me really thinking and i kind of wonder if maybe there's something that relates to that like you were mentioning mothman and stuff mm -hmm. like that and i'm wondering if i i kind of need to broaden my scope a little bit when it comes to thinking about these these behaviors did you do you see stuff like that with with mothman as well or is that just or that does does that seem to be <laughs> dogman related yeah well i can't think of one singular mothman or flying humanoid encounter and again i've i've investigated many accounts but i've also interviewed many eyewitnesses but they're always individual creatures that people describe in other words it wasn't moth men there was always one winged creature that was chasing people there was not a flock of these of these things around so um <laughs> you know they uh, the flying humanoids you know the, the the most reported thing in terms of the mothman was of course it you know chasing the car I'm talking about the the first incident, the first notable incident, the Scarborough Mallet sighting of November 15, 1966, where it chased this car at speeds approaching 100 miles an hour, flying very low just above the back window, which is pretty terrifying, and allegedly making a strange mechanical squeaking noise. It also, um, you know, popped up out of the shadows quite a bit, startling people. Um, but it did, didn't seem to be like a predatory type of behavior. In other words, it was it was scaring people, but it didn't seem to be hunting or stalking them. I guess is is what I'm trying to say. So maybe that is, you know, if if accurate, that is more of a behavior that that can be associated with the dogman phenomenon. Well, I really like where we have come to on this, and I feel like this discussion. I know for me, definitely elevated. <laughs> my thinking on on all of this this has got me thinking in a really 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 brand new way and i really appreciate you coming on today ken and and talking with us and and talking about this and we don't want to keep you any longer than than necessary but both of us just thank you immensely because i i think we've I think we've covered some new ground today. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Like I said, these are all complex mysteries, many different layers. 
and it ultimately it is all speculation. So, I mean, we can certainly come up with, with arguments that, you know, based on the, the data that we've collected that are some that are stronger than others. Um, a couple of last things I'd like to add. Um, one is I remember the name of the eyewitness. <laughs> this doesn't bother me, but <laughs> his name was Mark Shackleman. And uh, back in 1936, he saw this dog man digging at a grave in a sacred, uh, in a you know, near a church or something. So I, I don't know. I just, for those of you out there that are all about the details, look up Mark Shackleman if you're interested. It, she, Linda Godfrey writes about this incident quite a bit. Um, you know, the other thing that I want to add is, you know, I think it's important that, you know, many of us in these different fields that investigate different various types of phenomenon that we're, you know, we're specialized. And that's, I think that's a good thing. Um, I don't think there's one, you know, I, I honestly don't think it's possible or at least practical to become an expert in all of these different topics. So we have UFO investigators, we have cryptozoologists, cryptid hunters of different types, and then we have paranormal researchers like like you guys and um you know i i'm i can only speak to the dogman phenomenon from a cryptozoological perspective that's what i know uh, i'm fascinated with the with the paranormal uh i have many friends and colleagues that are involved in uh, you know paranormal investigations uh so i you know i pick up on a lot of what they say and i, I find it to be a fascinating topic and i'm very open-minded i i acknowledge fully acknowledge there are things going on again Things are going on in our world that we just don't understand at this point, energies or whatever you want to call them. But dogman is not an animal. It can't be. So that's that's all I can bring to the table in terms. I mean, I would say I'm ninety percent convinced that it's not an animal. So fascinating. What what a rabbit hole this has got to be. Before we let you go, I want to ask where people can learn more about you and what you do. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you again for having me on, guys. Hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. I I have a website, KenGerhard.com, and I'm also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I have a YouTube channel, just posted a new cryptid video this week. Um, and also, if people are interested in checking out my books, they're all available on Amazon.com. That's awesome. And so we'll post some links to your uh, social and your website well, in the show notes for this. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ken, so much for this. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you for everyone who listened in. And uh, yeah, let's let's talk again real soon. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, we'll bring you back for a Mothman episode. <laughs> it sounds like uh, you know your stuff on that one. Okay. <laughs> Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called meditation. In parapsychology, the ability to clear your mind and find a good-feeling place is more than just a mindful practice. In order to conduct experiments involving things like remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and psi-ability, the participants have to be able to quiet the mind and let go. I've been asked time and again, how do I connect with loved ones once they've passed over? I'm in grief. What do I do? Well, Meditation is one of the best processes to get out of your own way. It allows you to let your vibration rise into the pure positive energy that your loved ones now are and tune in like a radio dial to any communication they might have. When we're in grief, sadness, anger, or frustration, 
we are out of tune with the frequency that they now reside on. There are many ways to meditate, including art, hemisync, guided meditations, or even just patting your cat for a while. Statistically, most paranormal experiences occur when we let our minds wander and we release as many resistant thoughts as we can. Meditation allows us to put our brain in neutral and stop whatever we have going on that's holding ourselves apart from the connection with non-physical that we really want. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>